0: Welcome to Sustainability at Haas mini-series, a podcast series looking at how the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business is shaping the next generation of sustainable business leaders. I'm Adriana. And I'm Olivia. And today we're accompanied by a couple of very special Haas MBA alumni that have developed their careers in sustainability with very different paths. We'll
1: hear from Tracy Gray, who's a Haas MBA alumni from the class of 2007, She's the founder and managing partner at The 22 Fund, the founder of a nonprofit called We Are Enough, which is focused on educating women on how to invest, and a lead partner at Portfolio Green Sustainability Fund. We'll also be joined by Evan Wiener, who's a Haas alum from the class of 2014, and currently the head of circular economy at H&M, with past experience at Nike and Adidas. Tracy, you have an incredibly impressive career, which I'm sure you hear all of the time. And your career is especially interesting in sort of the diversity of twists and turns. Um, it looks like you have spent time as an aerospace engineer and working in city government and spending time in the music and entertainment industry and then getting into economic development and nonprofit work. And more recently, you started your own venture capital fund. Um, so. I am really curious. Can you speak to sort of some of the forces or motivations or, you know, guiding forces that sort of led led you through each of those career moves?
2: First of all, thanks for having me, ladies. I really appreciate whatever little interest you have in me. There is no plan. There was no plan. I am one of those people that I don't dip my toes in. I just jump all the way into anything. And so, If something sounds interesting or piques one of my passions, I'll try it. I thought I was going to be an astronaut. I mean, up until I was in my 20s, I wanted to be an astronaut and I applied to be an astronaut. But because the technology for the shuttle program was based on technology in the 50s and 60s and no one envisioned women to be um, astronauts and you had to be a pilot. So no one envisioned you to be a pilot back then. I was too short for one because no man would be this short to them, you know, and we've got to be able to reach the controls. So you had to be 5'7", and you had to have perfect eyesight because pilots are to have 2020 vision because they didn't know what would happen with Lasix or, I guess, contacts. So I um, was not able to be an astronaut, and I ended up working as an engineer, a systems engineer, not an aerospace engineer, but a systems engineer on the space shuttle program. I love that, but what I didn't love was they, it was during the time when mainly the payloads were defense department payloads, and I'm up the am anti-war, pacifist, progressive, you know, I went to Berkeley, so <laughs> that's a given, but I also went to Columbia, so, you know, but I was investigated for being a subversive by the FBI and the defense department when I worked there. So I have a whole, I have my file that's all redacted and stuff, but um, from the FBI. And I was just like, okay, so I can't work for my government if I didn't believe in everything, my government. That's pretty much what they were saying to me. They didn't fire me. They didn't think I was subversive. They were like, this is ridiculous. But um, it kind of, it really, it was my first job and I was very naive and it opened my eyes. And I love technology, but I didn't love sitting at a computer, fixing computers. And, and I just didn't enjoy that. So, um, I loved music. Like I used to play the drums, clarinet, flute, a horn. <laughs> I played a lot of instruments and I, I loved music. And so I um, ended up being a band manager because a friend of mine who is still one of the top managers in the world, you will know every band he uh, manages. And I would go backstage with him. And I was like, this is all you do every day? Just like sit backstage with bands? It wasn't what he did every day. He has, It's a really hard job. and It's hard to make money. But I thought, oh, that looks easy and fun. So that's why I did it. So I, that's a long way to say that I just, if someone presents an opportunity to me and it seems interesting, I will do it. And when I did venture capital, that came from my time in the music industry when I worked for a music manager, music, uh, label and publishing company he the the owner of that company the founder of that company became a vc because his frat brother and at stanford didn't know anyone else in la so asked him to come in as white men do they just they, you don't have to have any credibility you don't have, to have any background they just let you in right so he was writing this fund and i would criticize him without knowing the rhetoric and the language like, what are you investing in? Is this a business or a product? I don't get it. And then he asked me to come in and be their analyst associate and stop criticizing them from afar, but let us pay you. And I was like, okay, well, I'll do that. That seems interesting. And then I loved that. So I loved venture capital. That was going to be it for me, except what I found out, this was in 2000, that they were just giving $2 million check two white men and an idea and i saw very few people of color very few women and my engineering brain that just didn't make sense it was illogical to me when the majority of the country and the majority of the city of los angeles are women and people of color yet you can't find any to invest in so after that when they wanted me to help them raise their third fund i was like i'm not gonna and it was a lot of it was public money too with private and public money Lot of our tax dollars, I I'm not doing that for you. That led me to economic development because I wanted to see that nexus between public private capital where it could really do some good for um communities of color and communities that are under resourced. Um, and so did that. Didn't like being a nonprofit. I'm just not a nonprofit gal. Um, I'm a social capitalist. So there's actually like parts of capitalism. And when, that's when I went and got my MBA. Because when I was at this economic development nonprofit, that the CEO of the nonprofit, she, um, we, were, we did a lot of agreements with real estate developers, and they always talked down to her. I mean, it was like, before we had this term, it was a lot of mansplaining, right, to her and what she didn't know about real estate development. But they would say all that without asking her background. She was a top corporate lawyer at a real estate development company, firm. But they never even took the time. So they'd sit there and explain to her. And then she let them do it. And then she like go in with it with them. and they were, they were so shocked that this woman could know all this that then she was able to get everything she wanted from them. And I was like, oh, that's her superpower. I need that superpower. And that's what I felt like an MBA would give me. Um, I wanted to go to a top 10 school. I wanted to be in California. And I wanted to be in New York. And they had a perfect program called the Berkeley Columbia Executive MBA program, and that's how I landed there.
0: So before we go into that space where you like wanted to land into the MBA world and and all these things, I, I'm just curious to you know, like, are you always like looking for the hardest challenges? Because I and I say this because I, like <laughs> going from like deep engineering into activism into music management into VC for like in the women like as a woman. And, and all of these crazy things, like it is, it is hard. So like, how do you like use, like, w- what do you measure against in order to say, like, is this, is this hard enough for me or like? Well, one, I'm a tourist, I'm stubborn. And if
2: someone tells me I can't do something, I'm going to like prove them wrong. So when I was in the music industry, I was on, not on the rap and soul music where they thought black women should be. I was on the rock side, alternative, what we call alternative rock. I don't know what, they, what you kids call it now, but it was alternative rock back then. Um, and then venture capital, again, they were, I, you know, there's no women and people of color in professional investors or entrepreneurs. And I didn't make any sense. And so it's not the challenge. It's like, it's the injustice coupled with it not being logical for my engineering mind. And I feel like I have to fix it. And if some, I you know, and the, the bigger the barrier, the more I want to fix it, because it's just not fair. And that's where that all comes from. So it's not like, oh, I like big challenges. No, I am actually kind of lazy and I would like it to be a lot easier. But as we know, nothing is going to be easier for women and people of color until we all have control over these systems. So,
0: no, it wasn't,
2: that wasn't, it. it's my stubborn side.
0: Yeah, it is fascinating being like the system thinker, like I see you, as a, you as, a, as a system thinker. How can I impact beyond myself and how can I see beyond my eyes? So that's fascinating. So I hear I, I read something in your LinkedIn post that you posted like three days ago and uh, like a part of the quote said, even with, when everyone else told me for years not to lead with diversity and impact climate, just finance returns, you ask why not, both right how do you get this idea and uh, what are the critical moments in your path that made you realize the value of this intersection between diversity impact climate and financial returns well once again it wasn't rocket science and you know i know what rocket science is
2: right it was just (laughs) i i never understood why i can't like my job and then love the results of my job right I, I. I wanted uh, Eckhart Tolle. He was he not quoting him exactly, but he's like, you know, the best, the best life is when your, your greatest desire and the best good to the world is combined, or something like that. You know, like the way you make money and your passion is combined. And I'm also a Buddhist. And so there's something we call right livelihood. Um, meaning you are living your lives in a way that doesn't hurt planet or people or any kind of living thing, you know, mineral, uh, animal, all that. And so I just got tired of living kind of two lives. And when I figured out, well, there's a way for me to make money and to make good or make have an impact. Why do, I, why, can't, why do I have to have that Sophie's choice? Why do I have to choose one or the other? Why do I have to lead with one and pretend the other one doesn't exist and kind of bring it up? I just, it just didn't feel authentic. And we all want to live an authentic life, right? And as women, and especially as women, women of color, there's something called code switching where you show up one way and then you're with your friends, you're your you're other way. And I am just not capable of doing that. I don't have an interior um internal editor. I don't know how to switch it on and off. I'm comfortable with everybody in all spaces. I really never feel uncomfortable. And so why did I have to, I just it didn't make any sense. It comes back to logic. It didn't make any sense. Why couldn't I leave with both? Why do I have to choose one? And that's all it was. Like I said, it's not rocket science. It's nothing that I'm going to like come back with some amazing thing that someone's going to quote me. It's just how I operate.
1: I love that. I think more and more that thinking is taking hold. Um, you know, just as a an MBA student looking for prospective jobs and, and impact in climate, uh, I, I see a lot more. I see so many more firms and companies um, talking about and highlighting the, the intersection of DEI and climate change. Um, sounds like you were... At the Vanguard. They love it.
2: Yeah, but they're not really the intersection of diversity, equity. I don't use the word inclusion because it sounds like I have to be included in their spaces instead of them being coming to my space, you know. And so I tried to like opportunity, maybe. I don't know what I haven't come up innovation. I haven't come up another word with inclusion, but I don't like it, but I haven't solved that problem yet. But um, I don't think there's a real, if you look at what's happening in the climate, especially in venture and private equity and climate investment, once again, right, crypto, like everything, they are not thinking intersectional or holistically about, you know, women and people of color experience the worst of these impacts more than anyone in the world, yet we're not given the capital to come up with the solution we know the solutions because we experience it so we've got you know a privileged white guy who are telling us here's how you're going to fix your problem and you know it's it's not the way it should work so it's still very few people are talking about climate justice and um, environmental justice or intersectional environmental that isn't happening or it's a drop like a drop in the bucket
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, sadly, that's the case.
0: Yeah, and this topic in particular is just fascinating to me, because, like, yeah, I'm Colombian, I'm from South America, and one of my passions is, like, how can I drive the climate agenda, not only for the development of new technologies, but for the development of business models that can help the global south? So, again, thinking of that, like that balance of environment and positioning uh, companies in the emerging economies to a better space that can develop from an industry 1.0 to an industry 4.0. And it happens locally and it happens globally. But like, how do you go beyond and, and look, yeah, look like that? So I just wanted to hear your take on the global perspective.
2: Well, that's why I... um. Our fund invests in manufacturing hard technology to help them increase their international sales or go globally. We do not have time, unfortunately, do not have time to create all new technologies all over the world, right? And the U.S., for better or for worse, a lot of technology is coming up out here, from here. But how can we help... Um, the global South leapfrog from the existing technologies to, to the old technologies, to the new technologies. And that is what I see. I, I don't live in those countries, so I can't, I don't want to say you should do this, but we have some technologies here that might help. Right. And that is why we, we help with exports. Plus it exports creates jobs faster. And so we're helping, um, low and moderate incomes here in the U.S., create jobs, and then technologies to help other countries, especially the global South, leapfrog. And I got into a slight little, not argument on LinkedIn, but not an argument. It was just a discussion because what's happening It with the war in Ukraine and we're backsliding on our sustainability goal and these oil and gas folks are just pushing oil and gas all over the world. And so this woman, she, I said, well, you're not really talking about, she was from, I don't know, some investment company. And I said, you're not talking about sustainable investing in the global south in a way where they have um, agency. And she said, well, you know, we, we talked to some of the companies like, you know, the oil and gas companies, and they say, you know, the, like Indonesia wants our oil and gas. What are we supposed to do? It, We're at we, They want it. And, I, and she just accepted that, right? And, and she accepted it and said, oh, it's just so hard to do this. Well, they say it's so hard to have more women and people of color in, in investing. They say it's so much harder to find entrepreneurs and women and people of color. It's just another excuse to say no. And to not change. So I pushed back on her. I said, Well, you just accepted this. And I said, Was it a white guy? She said, Yeah. And I said, You just accepted that it was hard. And it's not hard if you give the agency to the people who are experiencing this and you give the capital. And she said, You're you're right. It's not. I just accepted it was hard because they said so. I said, It's hard. It's gonna it's hard for them because they don't have this network, they don't have these these people, and they don't want it's hard because they don't want to change. When you don't want to change, it's almost impossible to change. They're making money hand with the foot. So we just accept it's hard and we don't question it. And so I just think um, that's why one reason we're focused on
0: international and exports from the U.S. to help leapfrog that. So is the push, because it's hard, coming from... Uh- from the LPs, from the limited partners, saying uh-huh. 10 to 20% of our investment is the max limit that we're willing to risk to the global, to emerging economies, or is it more the managing partners making decisions that are not including perspectives from the global south?
2: I think it's more, um, I, it's both, right? It, there's enough, I know women and people of color who want to invest in the global south, and want to invest differently they just don't have the capital so so it's first start with the lp always starts with the asset allocators and the asset managers um around the world because there's 98.7 percent of them are white men so there we go right and then they put money all they put most of their money into uh gps that are white men and then we expect it to be any differently so it's it's both it's, the existing, the traditional legacy GPs and all of the LPs, pretty much just accept this as fact. But there's enough GB, GPs around the world that want to change this. But what are you going to do? You take a magic wand to change it? No, you need magic capital, real capital, right? And so it all starts with the LPs, I have to say. Bless their hearts.
1: Well, shifting gears a little bit to. Talk about your MBA experience. I know you did a dual MBA with Berkeley Haas and Columbia Business School. I'm curious if you could take us back a little bit to your headspace when you were just starting your MBA program. What were you hoping to learn or get out of the experience? Did you come in with a singular focus, you know, I want to accomplish, I want to learn XYZ and I want to come out of this experience uh, entering this type of role? Or were you in more of an exploratory mode?
2: I wanted to get my MBA for the reason I wanted the superpower and credibility. So the most educated demographic in the country are Black women, but were the least seen as credible. And so, one, if you talk to a lot of Black women, we're going to have, like, lots of degrees. I have three and a half degrees. A half because I was getting my master's in applied math and on my way to my midterm, I was like, why am I doing this? And then I turned around and didn't go back. (laughs) (laughs) So I never (laughs) finished that. So I just felt like I needed more credibility. I think I fell into that cliche that we women think we're never enough. We always have to get more. We always have to cross our T's and dot our I's. We let the perfect be the enemy and the good. And I fell into that same thing. And now, you know, I think about someone had this quote, like, and said, "Artist prayer." Every may I wake up every morning with the same amount of confidence as the most mediocre white man? And it's true, right? They just like, woo, swing from the chinses. I can do that. I might have 3% of the requirements, but I'll be able to do it where we think we need to have 110%. And then we feel like we're not enough. So I fell into that same trap. And then I also wanted to, you know, I was going to go, first I was going to do my full-time, but I was told I was too old to do the full-time because I was 40 at the time. Uh, And then I thought, I'll go, I want to go to New York, but didn't want to do that because I wanted to go to Wall Street. I wanted to know thy enemy, right? I wanted to know how they thought. I didn't want to get, you know, go to some schools that just focused on CSR or stay, you know something more woo-woo, what I used to call woo-woo. I wanted to know what they knew. So once I could change it and so they couldn't mansplain or talk down to me. And then when I saw I could do both of them, be at Berkeley with my progressive social impact side and caring about people. And then my Columbia side, that, you know, Wall Street money, all that. I thought it was a perfect combination for me to do what I wanted to do, which was to start my own fund. That was a different type of fund.
1: What was your sort of ambition going into the program? And, you know, on day one, you know, what were you hoping to, to learn or get out of the experience with an interest in, you know, going to Wall Street? Were there any particular roles that you were, you were interested in?
2: No, I didn't want to go to Wall Street. I just wanted to know what they knew. I wanted to be in venture capital. That was my goal. Little did I know you couldn't just be an analyst and or associate and start your own fund. What I didn't know that because I, I don't know. I didn't think I needed to do that. So I wanted to be in venture capital. I loved venture capital. So that's what I want to do. I didn't. I I don't like working for people. I always tell people if I come to you asking for a job, run. I'm a really bad employee because I either <laughs> think I know I know more than everybody else, or I get bored really easily, or I just don't like being like in a box and told what to do. I like to be able to be a, autonomous and be able to shoot for the moon and so um, I knew I wanted to work for myself, and I just didn't know it before I went to venture capital. I didn't know what it was. I have an entrepreneurship kind of intuition and deep in my soul, but I really, I was never around that. So I thought I needed, like I said, I need. I wanted to come out with a, to start a venture capital fund. That's what I wanted to do, but I wanted one that was impact. I, and my impact at the time was diversity. So back then I was going to start a fund. I actually launched a fund and, and received some capital to invest in early stage tech of women, and people of color, what people are doing now. But back then, the impact investors didn't believe we existed. They asked, they said, are there women and people of color in tech? And, you know, they literally asked if I existed because I'm a woman person of color in tech. And they didn't believe there was enough of them to invest. So, and then, you know, we got out when the world fell apart. The Great Recession started right when we got out. So I really couldn't raise a fund. But that was my goal to go to business school was to raise a fund and get the credibility behind me. I'm curious,
1: were there any experiences that you had while at Berkeley or at Columbia that maybe more directly informed your uh, your fund today and your nonprofit work?
2: So the fund, yes, because of the international, I always loved, I've been a traveler and love of international, the world since I was a child. My dad was in the air force. And so we've lived outside the country. We traveled a lot. It just, I always felt itchy if I did wasn't on a plane. And then I st- I took, I focused on international business when I was at Berkeley Columbia and my professor was a, a woman for international business Laura Tyson and I just loved her class I loved going you know we did 10 day I don't know if you guys do that but we did 10 day classes in different markets so I went and I figured out like if I do two international trips that's two classes and I have like one less class do. so I went to India and I went to um, Argentina to study Latin America and Asia and it just I knew I was going to do something in the international markets. It wasn't until I went to, but that helped me when the recession happened. I had to get my recession job, which was at the mayor's office. I I knew the Los Angeles mayor for a long time, and I know for a fact he hired me because I had Berkeley and Columbia as my, you know, and international. And I ended up being senior advisor for international business, which led, and I had my job was to increase exports in Los Angeles and then help the um, regions around the country with the Obama administration and um, the Brookings institution to increase exports at a city level. And that all came from being at Berkeley and Columbia.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah. The international business development class is I think still one of the most popular classes here at Berkeley. Although unfortunately, during Adriana and my time at Berkeley, we haven't been able to participate because of covid, <laughs> but I think they're they're starting it back up,
2: yeah, it's great.
1: maybe this year
2: they should let you guys go if you can I don't <laughs> it, it really is you, you really get i mean you're close to you you become close to your classmates anyway, but on that trip is really where I saw people kind of see me cement the um relationships, and we did it with Berkeley, Columbia, and the London School business. And it was not just the um Berkeley Columbia or the they had their um global program. It was also the full time and the um part time, fully employed. All of them went on these trips. So we all went together. And so that that um network, which is that's what I tell people you're paying for, <laughs> is that network and business school. And I feel bad that some of you got gypped out of it because this pandemic. But um,
0: yeah, I think like everything got back on for this semester. So I went to Copenhagen with my class, and uh, it was fascinating. Some others went to Africa, but yeah, it is it is a little bit limiting through like going through MBA school <laughs> through COVID. But yeah, I just wanted to to get from you maybe like one piece of advice that you want to share with the current and future and um, alums that that are part of the Has community and beyond. Is there something that you wanted to for all of us to know?
2: Um, this is what I tell everybody. I was just actually speaking to the Wharton School. I was in Philadelphia speaking of Wharton. And I say this to everybody don't start with fear because we just don't get anywhere from fear. You know, whenever you're afraid, you like shrink, you collapse, you don't grow. If you just start with the biggest possibilities, what could happen? You'll, you could reach the biggest possibility. If you start with fear, that's where you're going to stay. And so I always tell people to think of, instead of thinking of it as failure or something going wrong, just think of it as practicing. And if you can make it through business (laughs) and live with, with your sanity, really you can do anything. I mean, it's not as hard as medical school or getting your JD. I won't say that, but it's more expensive. So, you know, that's a problem. But um, I think, Everyone should do that and not start with fear. Just like go for it. So both of you go for it, whatever person be ready. Because when you're fearful, you're not ready for opportunities that present themselves. But if you're, you know, you start with abundance, not to sound like new agey, but if you start with abundance, the sky's the limit. And that's why we spend all this money on business school. (laughs) So we can reach those heights.
0: Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Yeah, thank you, Tracy. Thank you, ladies. All right, let's transition now to our conversation with Evan Wiener, Haas class of 2014, where we'll talk about his career in the world of corporate sustainability. Welcome, Evan.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us. To kick us off, I want to start with your career background. It looks like you spent the first nine ish years of your career at Adidas. And you started in Portland, but spent most of that time living in Germany and England. Uh, And then you moved to San Francisco, started sort of your own consulting firm, working with consumer brands on sustainability and went to business school. So I'm curious, after nine years at Adidas, what inspired you to make that transition, move to San Francisco, go to business school? It would be, I would love to hear more about that.
3: Well, it definitely was a transition uh, and a clear pivot for me after spending, as you said, nine, 10 years in basically one brand and primarily in marketing driven roles. I I jumped around a lot and I did that intentionally. I I really enjoyed learning uh, and seeing a company the size of Adidas from many different perspectives but i also knew my functional area of expertise in marketing and brand and product was still pretty narrow so that was one of the reasons why i was interested in going back to school to get my mba because i knew it would broaden my skill set and exposure beyond what i had experienced at, at adidas the other big reason is cuz you know i think we all go through this this process at some point in whether it's in the first few years or the middle point in their careers or maybe we're, maybe we're always doing it is probably the right answer. But I felt that after eight or nine years, I started to think about what I really wanted to do, what what I was passionate about. Um, and while I loved marketing and brands because it's so interesting work, it's very dynamic, it's, it's consumer-facing, you're um, always in the eye of the public and you're influencing you know how millions of people think about a product or uh, an tangible thing like a brand, I, I I started to say, well, how can I you know leverage that interest with some other things I'm interested in like sustainability and bigger causes that I knew were out there looming. It seemed very strange to me to work, spend all my time helping a company essentially grow and make money and be more profitable, but then kind of ignore. <laughs> ignore the realities of what was going on in in the world and so i thought okay well how can you know how can i work in sustainability and also work for a brand um and it led me to this space of corporate sustainability to 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 explore further to um see if it was something i wanted to to work in
1: awesome i'm curious did you have your eye on the bay area for any particular reason or, or Haas specifically? And and were you, had you moved back to San Francisco before applying to business school or was this sort of concurrent?
3: I did not move back before I applied or started. I was still living in Europe at the time. You know, to me, San Francisco has just such a dynamic as a place to live that is really unmatched in the world. And so I, I went to business school pretty late in my career or a little bit further on in my career. So I knew that, you know, being somewhere I really wanted to live versus just being a place where the school was, was, was important to me. But I also did, you know, to the point of wanting business school to be a platform through which I could explore my interests in sustainability. I knew I needed to go to a program that not just had those courses, but it was really integrated into the values of the school um, and the program, you know, Haas, as we know is that. Um, with the center for responsible business at the time, most programs didn't have something like that. You know, I had the chance to meet with the, the, the leader of the center at the time, Kelly McElaney, and it was only a couple conversations in where I, I was like, this is a good place for me to explore these interests and to be because of the network, because of the values. Yeah, some of the electives and curriculum that I was able to take advantage of Uh, and something I probably didn't even know at the time was how many consumer brands and experts in sustainability that were Bay Area based. And so, you know, I, I tell people when I talk about the value of the MBA, a lot of it was that time to network to to go out there and learn what people were doing, you know, and that was all in the backyard of the Bay. So I was grateful for that to, to have all those connections right at our fingertips there.
0: Yeah. So let's transition a little bit into you, your time at HAS. So one question that we hear a lot from our MBA students is that sometimes you enter with it like a very like singular path or or have an idea that you want to dive in and explore deeper so that you can use the time to the fullest do you come with one with one single idea or do you explore a lot and then focus in, in what you want it
3: yeah i know for me i did come in with a very clear mission and leave with a clear mission that we're connected and i I know a lot of people come in and pivot, but it's still evolved in a way that I wasn't expecting. Thinking that you want to work in the world of corporate sustainability is still so, so broad, right? I mean, you could be a specialist in an analytics department. You could work in supply chain. You could be building products, working in innovation. You could be a materials expert. You know, these are in consumer facing brands that are making products. There's just so many pathways that you could go. You could also be on the consulting side and work in corporate sustainability. And so very early on, you know, I was exposed to the breadth that I didn't realize was out there. Also then the differences between industries was very, you know, very big. And so I really had to think, okay, do I want to stay in consumer brands, consumer products? Um, And then if so, what function, what specialization? And so... I went through a lot of that process of exploring these different pathways. I I will say in general, like a few conclusions after my first year, I, I really was nervous about working in sustainability because I hadn't quite found the work that I thought was truly inspiring to me. And uh, some of the classes and even just my exposure to people that work in sustainability had tended to be people with very specialized backgrounds in analytics, or they knew how to do LCA assessments, or perhaps they were on, you know, more of the ESG governance policy, policy and regulation side. And that is so fundamental to any corporation, but it wasn't what I was passionate about. And so it actually wasn't until I I went to a speaker series that, that where there was a few speakers on the topic of sustainability that I can't remember which lecture series it was part of. But they brought in some speakers that were actually talking about sustainability as a driver of innovation, as a driver of growth, thinking about it beyond risk, beyond compliance. And and I it was kind of a, a moment in my Haas experience where I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. It's sustainability through the lens of innovation and how do you help companies grow through sustainability, drive deeper relationships with their customers, solve customer problems, solve growth problems? It's that intersection between growth and sustainability that really is where I found my um, calling in this space. So, so it wasn't what I thought, or it wasn't even what I knew. You know, I didn't. I went into Haas not knowing much about any any real jobs in corporate sustainability, and then I went down that path of going, oh wait. Is this really, you know, I thought I was here to work in sustainability, but none of it's very exciting to me. But then again, you know, as I kept down that path, I I found this area that was really inspiring to me. And and so I knew even after, as I kind of entered my second year, targeting consumer facing brands, uh, and that one, I believed were really about looking at sustainability as a driver of innovation and growth, but then also roles that were in that capacity. And the final thing I'll say on it is it, it allowed me to also to kind of leverage my background prior to Haas in marketing and not, not everyone needs to do that. But when you're making a pivot, you know, and I, everybody's heard it a million times at Haas, you're, you know, change your function or change your industry. And so I, I really knew that I was changing my function. So I tried to stick with the industry and then also kind of leverage my, my past in marketing to, to, to at least make myself as. Attractive as a candidate as possible when I started pursuing jobs.
1: That sounds
3: really familiar.
1: I think a lot of Haas students are most interested and come to Haas because they want to work at the intersection of of strategy and sustainability, and they want to use sustainability, as you said, a driver of innovation, but also a, a driver of strategic differentiation for for brands. Um, I'm curious. I think. Your path into sustainability at Nike makes a lot of sense. Did you at all consider going into sustainability consulting?
3: I did. And and I think there right now, it couldn't be a better time if you're listening to this and thinking about the, the corporate consulting side for sustainability, big firms, small firms. This was not the case, I think, when I was leaving Haas, you know, I think consulting, there there were some niche consulting sustainability companies and they actually, I think one of them when I was at Haas uh, kind of folded and then a couple others, you know, and there were a few that were more on the marketing angle, like how to build purpose-driven brands, which is, Olivia, as you mentioned, that's that's what I started my own consulting practice around when I was at Haas was, was helping brands identify their, their, their bigger purpose and how to integrate sustainability into that purpose. But yeah, that was still very, there was, there was hard to, I think, to be a consultant in sustainability at the time. And now I think you could be, again, big, small, medium firm, or even independent on your own and, and do quite well, because a lot of sustainability projects are now finding their way into different functions or areas of a business and not kind of um, limited or or stuck within a, a core sustainability department. And it's that, you know, even as you talk about companies that are really progressive in this space, in my opinion, it's the ones that are starting to really integrate and move sustainability out of the core sustainability team and embed it and have the accountability for it into the various functions. And therefore, those are the teams now, you know, even leading sustainability projects, asking for consultants to come on. Even needing support on a you know on an ad hoc basis, I, I think a lot of corporations can leverage consultants really well in this space. They don't necessarily need to build large resource intensive sustainability teams. They can bring in contractors and consultants when you know when when the work is needed. So I think that's an excellent path to explore, particularly now.
1: so you are at h and
3: m as the GM of circular economy
1: a role that is, you know, I'm sure playing an active and defining role in sort of the next generation of corporate sustainability and in apparel and consumer brands. I'm curious, what are you seeing in the space that makes you really excited, either from you know a technology perspective or just the way that companies are starting to approach and integrate sustainability into their business strategy?
3: Well, apparel and footwear is a unique industry because it's a an industry where, you know, Shoes and shirts, <laughs> textiles have kind of been made in a very linear supply chain for hundreds of years, you know, and the, and the supply chain really hasn't changed much. So what we're starting to see in apparel and footwear is, you know, there is a true transition from a linear to a circular system where we're not just taking raw materials and turning them into products, selling them, consumers use them, throw them away, but thinking about how to reinvent that whole supply chain to reduce waste, increase efficiency, and then from a technology standpoint, create an industry where we can take used textiles and turn them into new textiles. It is a level of innovation that doesn't exist yet at scale, and most people don't even know that. Everything you you buy and wear is not really truly a sustainable product because it is pretty still resource intensive, and there's no good way to recycle it or, or turn it back into itself when, when we're done with it. So it does, it's one of the reasons why the industry I think is so ripe for innovation in, in all areas of the supply chain, but it's also why, you know, I, I am motivated to work in this space and in this role at H&M, which is because sustainability, again, it's not just about sustainability in some traditional ways that maybe were popular several years ago, but circular economy is an entirely new way, uh, to help a company transition to, to a more sustainable and to rethink the supply chain, the products, the processes, logistics, consumer engagement, and, and also take responsibility for products after they're sold and used, you know, that's new, that's, that's just starting. So that's, that's, what's exciting about things like circular economy. Is it really pushing the boundaries of how companies think about sustainability?
0: So so what is one key takeaway on circular economy that you want to like make sure everyone knows about like oh circular economy you can transform supply chains or you can transform the global south or you can what is that the, the one critical aspect of like circular economies that like trigger you <laughs>
3: One is uh, tough, so I will uh, I can give you two. What It's, to me, the most systemic way to think about sustainability. So sustainability is often, I think, most effective when you break down silos, when you connect dots between supply chain, logistics, product, innovation, marketing, you know, and circular economy allows companies to break those silos down. It also allows companies to break down silos outside of their four walls, uh, to think about how to collaborate on things like material innovation on supply chain disruptions new manufacturing technology things that previously had been considered competitive circular economy is saying hey we all need to solve these problems we all need to work on in the in my industry textiles apparel footwear we all need to work on technologies to uh break down fibers and turn them into new fibers that that's industry-wide so in my opinion, you know, the circular economy really helps to break down these barriers, the other, the other thing, cause I couldn't give you just one. The circular economy is a great way to quantify the environmental and the financial impact of sustainability at the same time, because at its core circular economy is, is, is thought of through the lens of how to reduce waste and increase efficiency. You know any expert in circular economy will tell you, well, that's that that's just the <laughs> that's just scratching the surface. But in its simplest terms, I find it a great way um within a business to to show that there's like an environmental impact and a business impact can go hand in hand and to find the 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 ways or the projects the the things that uh, that can bring those two aspects of sustainability together.
0: Oh, thank you. So another question that we hear a lot is like, how do you avoid greenwashing? And how do you like, what is the the purpose of the corporation in this whole sustainability journey? Like, I just want to hear your take on it and, and how do you make it move faster? Maybe.
3: It's really hard. Uh, I won't sugarcoat the whole aspect of greenwashing, um, green wishing is another way to think of it, right? Because we, you know, most people that work for consumer brands or part of the supply chain in some aspect are are doing good things to make real changes. And they might be incremental, they might be transformational on a small scale, but we all want to show and be proud of progress. And so I think actually a lot of greenwashing or green wishing comes from that good intent of like, see we're, you know, see what we're doing world like it, it is meaningful. Um, but I think we also need to bring in realism to the progress and we need to take accountability for, um, engaging with the public and our customers and, you know, anyone that, that works inside out from a corporation to the rest of the world and be honest about progress because it doesn't help to, to. I guess maybe make things seem better than they are, but, but know that it comes from a place of like, there is something really happening with most of the things that might get labeled as greenwashing. A great example I thought of the other day, I was getting on a flight, um, an airline and I, uh, in the boarding area, there was all this sustainability Green world. You know, of course, it was under the typical green, you know, banner of let's make airlines and this airline green. But I get on the plane and they hand it out to the 200 plus passengers on the plane, these tiny little like eight ounce plastic bottles, right, of water. And I just thought it was a great, I'm like, okay, we're still in this world where that company's working really actually hard. They're doing things. They're probably investing a lot in renewable energy, huge technology plays around how to make air travel more efficient. And so that's what they're promoting in the airport. But then you get on the plane it's like, well, yeah, you're still serving, you know, single use plastic bottles, Uh, you know? And so there's a lot of that where it's, Hey, we're, we're making good moves, but we're still have some, we still have a lot of progress. So I think it's better when companies own that progress, that they're very transparent. Um, But that often goes against, you know, how corporations are governed, you know, opening yourself up, being transparent is oftentimes a a way to increase your risk as a company. So, but my approach always is invest in things that are uh, transparent, try to be as transparent as possible with the progress you're making. Um, And then from a consumer engagement standpoint, make it as simple as you can. These topics are hard to grasp for for everyone, for me included. I read, you know, how often do you see this, you know, this initiative translates to X million tons of carbon emission reduction. I don't I don't even know that. And I work in the space. I don't know how to translate that. So as as a principle, you know, I always try to communicate things in a way that consumers will understand and to make that simple, because part of part of this work is is about education, about increasing awareness. So I think that's one way to to get over greenwashing.
1: Well, thank you so much. Evan, for sharing your your time with us. We are running out of time. So I have just one last question. What advice do you have for current or prospective Haas students who are trying to figure out how they want to make a difference?
3: Well, like I discovered in my time at Haas, there's so many different pathways that you can go. And so you might have a thought as you're coming in or even, you know, as you're navigating your second year or, or your time there of what you want to do. But I think my advice is to push yourself to expose yourself to as many different possibilities as possible because that in that way, you'll you'll find what you're most interested in. And this work, it's so important to feel a personal connection to it Not because you think you should, or, oh, it looks good to work in purpose-driven space. I mean, those things are all true, but to really find that the area that's going to motivate you, because the work is hard and the work takes a lot of patience and persistence and meeting people where they are, your stakeholders with, again, within a corporation or they're, they're often, yeah, not where you want them to be. And so... Coming from a place of like you're really interested and you're in it for the long haul and you're willing to meet people where they are is is just so important to this work, so that's that's my only advice is take the time to really go as broad as you can to explore the different industries, the different specialties, the different ways in which you can participate in this uh in this work.
1: I think that's great advice <laughs> thanks Evan,
3: yeah, of course.
1: A big thank you to Tracy Gray and Evan Weiner for sharing your stories and your wisdom with us, especially the importance of following your curiosity and building careers with meaning.
0: And to our audience, thank you so much for tuning into our fourth episode of Sustainability at Hasmin series. Remember to join us for our last episode to listen more about how Berkeley Haas is driving the development of sustainability leaders through our curriculum of faculty research alumni and career perspectives. Thanks for listening.